This is The Guardian. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson apologises to the public over a leaked video showing number 10 aides joking about holding a Christmas party during lockdown and then denies it ever happened. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I was also furious to see that clip. The clip he's referring to is the footage leaked to ITV, which appeared on Tuesday night, showing AIDS laughing about having held a party. Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> <I'm> joking. <laughs> this is recorded. Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's then press secretary, is seen scrambling for answers when quizzed over the party in a mock press conference. Stratton announced her resignation on Wednesday afternoon. During Prime Minister's questions earlier today, Boris Johnson finally reacted to the recording by saying... Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. But it did not satisfy Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. 489 people died of Covid on the day of the Downing Street party. So the British people put the health of others above themselves and followed the rules. Isn't the Prime Minister ashamed that his Downing Street couldn't do the same? With the video already seen by millions of people, will Boris Johnson's apology and denial satisfy the public? And can the government really just ride out this storm like those previous? Also this week, is a potential progressive alliance on the cards? Aubrey Allegretti and Peter Walker tell us what they found from covering the by-elections in Old Bexley and Sidcup and North Shropshire. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, just when you thought it was bad for the government... ITV exposed a leaked video making it much, much worse. And yet Boris Johnson seems to think the opposition is just playing politics. To discuss the Christmas shenanigans, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Zoe Williams. Zoe, it's lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. Let's start with what the Prime Minister has sort of been denying for a week now, uh, which on Tuesday night got a little bit harder to deny with this leak of the video from ITV. Um, 
A Christmas party was held in Downing Street last year when the rest of the country was in the depths of a tier three lockdown. And that was confirmed when some members of staff, some aides to the Prime Minister, were filmed laughing about uh, this gathering and suggesting that they might be able to pass it off as a business meeting um, while chuckling over the lack of social distancing. What did you think of it when you saw this video, Zoe? I mean, the the thing is, I was trying to piece together the timeline of this whole denial. If you think, if you remember PMQs this time last week, Johnson didn't deny it. He just kind of blustered. I think that's why the lie is going so badly. It's because nobody decided what to tell the world before they started telling it. And the line is changing, isn't it? Um, at one point, they were saying all COVID rules were followed. And then the next thing we know, num- the number 10 spokesman is saying there was no party. And that's just insane. And I think that because they kind of reacted in the first instance with this very kind of neck out, studs first, oh, you know the press, they're always wrong about everything. I think they've just laid themselves an unexploded landmine. I really think it's the dumbest, one of the dumbest pieces of political manoeuvring I've ever seen. And all these sort of details have dripped out, haven't they, about how there was a secret Santa, there was food and drink served. All of that suggests an element of premeditation. So it makes it very difficult for the government to say that this was just some sort of off-the-cuff event that happened as a sort of after-works drinks in the office. I know, Arena, and the really funny thing is, is that I now have forgotten what's true and what's just been made up by people on Twitter. So I'm kind of imagining, you know, we know that there were party games, according to the leaks, but I've got in my head like a load of pimply spads playing past the orange under the chin. <laughs> and, you know, and then I've got um, Therese, Co- Theresa Coffey's Don't Snog Under the Mistletoe, confused with actual mistletoe, and I'm, th- and I'm imagining them all snogging constantly. I mean, it's like, imagine if you weren't really paying attention by the end of the scandal it's going to be some tale of such bacchanalian excess you know it's i'm not surprised this has cut through because it combines a very very simple moral issue of kind of hypocrisy and double standards with a huge amount of national pain with you know some kind of hazy details which you absolutely know are going to get more and more nailed down as time goes on. That's right that you're mentioning this element of seriousness about it and that's partly what's cut through to the public I think this idea that the people in in the press room who were discussing the party were actually laughing about it at a time when people were dying and others were also not seeing their family when they really needed to um, because they were following the rules I wonder whether that's part of it, because, you know, there's always this, especially with this kind of very moneyed class, moneyed political class, which the the Tories sort of have this bifurcation of power privilege and money privilege. And they've always had a sense that, you know, the little people are doing are doing things differently and that's fine. And it's always been, you know, it's fine for us to go on holiday to the Maldives when nobody else can afford to get to Skegness, because at least we're all in the same sphere as a holiday. The problem is that so much comes under the umbrella of the COVID legislation. So yes, there will have been people who also broke the rules. And yes, there will have been people who who can kind of understand this. But there will also be people who couldn't have broken the rules because the rule was that they couldn't go and be with their parent while they were dying in hospital. And those people are never, ever going to say, oh, well, we all, you know, we all mess about sometimes. Those people are going to say, I was prevented. I was prevented from an absolutely critical human office of being with the person I loved 
as they died. I was prevented by this government and they had a party. I mean, there's just no squaring it. And one of the people at the centre of this story is Allegra Stratton, who was then uh, the press secretary to the prime minister. She's uh, a former Guardian journalist, former BBC and, and ITV. What do you make of her role in it, Zoe? I don't, I, who knows what she would have been like if she had kind of t- t- had a proper run up at the job. But I think she always would have been, it always would have been an absolute poison chalice, that job, because you wouldn't send a press person out unless unless there were, you had something kind of embarrassing to damp down or kill or you know strangle in some way so she would, I don't I never understood why she took the job it'd be just so shaming to have to be the person saying the thing that you either know is untrue or you know is embarrassing or you know isn't quite the whole truth i mean to be a spokesperson for this government which is so dishonest would be like so embarrassing Let's just move on to uh, what Boris Johnson said in the House of Commons. Do you think this is going to draw a line under everything, Zoe, that he he announced that there's going to be an internal review of what may or may not have happened on this party on December the 18th? Um, And just bear in mind, he's not announcing a review of the alleged party that happened in November at a leaving do in which he gave a speech. I mean, probably the tactic is to have a review that takes so long that nobody minds once its findings are released. I mean, it's really interesting how much an an issue can be neutered by a prolonged investigation. If you think about Priti Patel and the bullying allegations, when those civil servants came out in the first instance and used really uncivil servant-like language to describe her behaviour, it looked like that was going to be the end of her. And then a review came out and it was an investigation was launched and the investigation found her guilty of bullying. But by the time she was found guilty, everybody had lost interest and the momentum had gone out of the of the of the kind of feeling against her. And I wonder whether the same thing would happen with this. Now, Keir Starmer was quick on the attack at PMQs, pointing out that it's fairly unbelievable that the prime minister didn't know anything about this party. I mean, it was meant to have taken place where the Prime Minister lives. How convincing was this from Boris Johnson, Joey? Well, as people always remind you, Downing Street is a lot bigger than you think. <laughs> so if he really wanted to go to the wire over it and say, I was, it was in my house, but I was, so I was upstairs or downstairs and I didn't hear a thing, you, they, prob- they probably would persuade you that that was physically possible. Of course, it's impossible, though, because the idea that something could happen so close to home w- without his say-so is is just laughable. You know, can you imagine how many people had to sign off on this, had to sign off on this event? And, of course, in order to be signed off on, Boris Johnson or somebody with his authority would have had to sign off on it. It's ridiculous. And there was that funny moment as well when Starmer mocked the Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, for what, for confusing what the police do and don't investigate earlier in the week. The Justice Secretary thinks that the police don't investigate crimes from a year ago. Well, I ran the Crown Prosecution Service and I can tell him that is total nonsense. There does seem to be a reluctance, doesn't there, on the part of the Met Police to investigate for whatever reason. Well, I think she, I think, I think Cressida Dick A is quite loyal to the to the government, and B is doesn't want to look, doesn't want to jump to the Daily Mail's tune. Um, but I think she's made the same mistake as Johnson, which is to think that it's going to die down. And every time it looks like it's going to die, every time it looks like somebody in authority 
is banking on it dying down, that's when people get even more incensed. And um, how do you think Starmer has done with this scandal? He was pretty ruthless just now at Prime Minister's Questions, choosing to bring in uh, the personal story of uh, an, an academic called Trisha Greenhar, who lost her mother last Christmas. Trisha followed the rules and didn't visit her mum. Listening? Four days later, on the day the Prime Minister's staff laughed about covering up the party, Trisha's mum was admitted to hospital. Trisha followed the rules and didn't visit. Trisha's mum spent Christmas Day in hospital. Trisha followed the rules and didn't visit. Two days later, Trisha's mum died. What did you think of that strategy? Was it an affecting moment? Well, it wasn't. I mean, I I often find Starmer a little bit clunky when he tries to do human, um, just because he's he's so his kind of oratory style is so formal that he's at his best when he's making a really killer point that you just can't escape. Um, look, it's very very important that he brings in an authentic voice of public rage because the, because it's there and, you know, it would be a crying shame if he squandered it. So far, the SNP is the only party to call for Johnson's resignation, though, isn't he? Why do you think Starmer hasn't gone there yet? Is it because he doesn't believe Boris Johnson is actually about to resign? I mean, I don't believe he's about to resign. I think they probably, I mean, my hunch is they're just seeing how much they can get out of it. If he goes straight to vote of no confidence, which he won't win, of course, because of the majority, then he's going to look really ridiculous next week if he wants to circle back round. Whereas if he, if every single day there's like a fresh embarrassing detail, there's a fresh person on the Today programme laying into the government, if every single day he's kind of building and circling and building and circling, he is going to wear them down. Not to the point of resignation, I wouldn't think, but certainly to the point where he starts to look kind of very weak and desperate. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the, the whole it's, – it's kind of quite useful. If the SNP and Labour were to coordinate a little bit more anyway, so, that, so they were kind of tag-teaming a bit, that would be incredibly useful. I wonder if they – I mean, of course, they haven't started doing that because Labour Party can't cooperate, but they should <laughs> – and Tory backbenchers are again asking the leadership to clarify things. Um, a lot of them are losing patience at this point. Um, what, do you, what did you make of Sajid Javid being pulled from this morning's media rounds? I mean, I just think he doesn't want to be hung out to dry. There are, there are people who are still prepared to be hung out to dry, but, um, and, and, but even they don't want to do it. So, you know, even Kwasi Kwarteng doesn't want to do it. So, so why on earth would Sajid Javid want to do it? He's really a senior person. I think it's bad. It's a bad look that they couldn't find a single person because what it does is it opens up the space for disgruntled backbenchers. And that's what we heard on the media around this morning. A lot of really disgruntled, angry backbenchers, actually. Um, and no no kind of, you know, human shields. That's, that, that's usually the, the stock in trade is the human shield. Back to this Christmas, um, Downing Street have been really fighting uh, against uh, any restrictions that would entail people cancelling Christmas. But it does seem now like they might be poised to go for Plan B restrictions. Indeed, they might have um, brought them in by the time this this podcast comes out. 
What do you make of the idea that uh, this this announcement might have been brought forward to partly distract from the current furore around uh, last year's Christmas parties? I mean, it's just, but it's. I mean, don't you find this time and time again? Is that almost every time they're saying anything now, you think it's a distraction from some fresh PR disaster? And what that really reflects is the fact they just can't keep a lid on things. So, you know, when they get when when Boris Johnson came out with his war on drugs. That that itself looked like a party distraction, and also it it looked like a kind of really tragic attempt to show themselves up as the party of law and order when they've lately become known as the kind of party of crookedness and corruption. <laughs> um, it, it, there does come a point when you're when you're kind of the the whole the wheels are falling off the machine when it's impossible to make policy announcements without it looking like a distraction from some other thing that's happened. So what happens next, Zoe? Do you think we can, can expect more leaked footage or testimonies? Um, I mean, I, I don't think this story is going anywhere, right? So th- now, and the, and the problem with this kind of thing is that there will have been people who didn't break ranks because it, until there was a smoking gun, they couldn't be sure it wouldn't die down. But now that it's now that there is a smoking gun and, it, and they will definitely die down, there are going to be people who want to curry favour with a news editor. There are going to be people who want the 90 quid tip that the sun will give them. There will be people, there will be all kinds of people with little tiny details, little tiny fun details, you know, that either are incredibly evocative or incredibly belittling. Um, And I think it's just going to keep on coming. Zoe Williams, in another very difficult week for the government, thank you very much. Oh, no problem. After the break, Aubrey Allegretti, Peter Walker and Jessica Elgott report on why a couple of by-elections are a potential cause of concern for the Conservatives. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian. Now, last week, the Conservatives won the old Bexley and Sidcup by-election by a comfortable but slashed majority. And next week, Owen Paterson's seat is up for grabs in North Shropshire. As the Conservatives have had a tormented few weeks, the by-elections in both Tory strongholds have been followed with great interest in Westminster. So has Sleaze made its way to people's doorsteps? Can progressive parties capitalise on it or do they need to formalise an alliance to succeed? 
Jessica Elgott, The Guardian's chief political correspondent, spoke to my colleagues Aubrey Allegretti, who was at the Old Bexley and Sidcup count, and Peter Walker, who's covering North Shropshire. Jessica started asking Aubrey if Labour had any real chance to take Old Bexley and Sidcup. Well, it's interesting because it's a by-election, you know, and the turnout was so low, the margins do really count. And actually, if you manage to get a few more thousand votes in what is normally a 19,000 majority majority seat, that can make all the difference. So Labour were claiming from literally the moment that the polls closed that they were never going to win it. But there was certainly a lot of jitters from the Conservatives on the doorsteps. And in actual fact, in the days after the election result came out, the Tories were out in, I'm told, areas where they weren't before, uh, sort of Labour wards, which some people took to mean was a sign that they were slightly worried and realised that they needed to consolidate their their vote a little bit more than they had before. And just instead of relying on people who used to turn out for the party not turning out because they had some issues with Boris Johnson. You spoke to to someone on the campaign from Labour, um, one of the MPs who was running it. Do you think that that there's lessons that can be learned for for general elections about seats like this? Yeah, so I spoke to Abana Pongasare, who um, is actually from Bexley and she represents a neighbouring constituency. She's also on the Treasury front branch for Labour. I think her main points were basically that Labour's done very well in terms of its kind of vote share and that replicated the sort of swing that they saw. If replicated at a general election would obviously be enough of a boost and we know that it needs to be a really big boost for Keir Starmer to actually get the keys to number 10. As a a Labour Party, whilst it is a great result, we are aware that, you know, we've got work to do to, you know, win seats like Old Betsy and Sidcup. But to get a swing of 10.3% is is a positive thing. I think where Labour are still struggling on the doorstep is really that people I spoke to felt like Keir Starmer wasn't presenting a positive enough alternative. That Boris Johnson's criticisms that he vacillates while we vaccinate really sort of wore through and that even if people were discontented with the Conservatives and Boris Johnson's leadership, they felt like Keir Starmer wasn't presenting positive alternative solutions, which is what's going to be really crucial to getting people to actually back him rather than just switch to other left-leaning parties or stay at home. And you mentioned it earlier, this this idea of extremely low turnout. Um, and it kind of bears out, doesn't it? What, we, what we're seeing in the, the polls at the moment is that we are seeing Labour creeping up the polls in, in, in quite a few cases being ahead by one or two points. But we're also seeing a lot of people moving into that don't know category, which Labour really needs to try and win over. But they're not yet won over, are they? No, exactly. Uh, I think it's really interesting to see the, the sort of slow loss of Conservative support is not yet completely translating into a net Labour gain. And that's really what Keir Starmer needs to try and focus on in the next few years really because we haven't got long until that next general election campaign will really start to feel just ahead of us so I think Keir Starmer needs to do a lot to turn around the people who who feel disenchanted but who don't really feel yet enough of a reason to vote for him what I think is quite interesting is that very few people seem to raise issues of Labour policy on the doorstep and it was much more about communications strategy and messaging that they felt was the problem so I think that's an area where actually he can probably try and improve things because you know if people haven't got massive concerns about your policy that's a pretty good starting point. And Peter, you've been you've been covering the by-election in North Shropshire. You were down there um, last week. A seat formerly held by the Conservative MP Owen Patterson, who unlike you know, unlike the the previous office holder in um, in Old Bexley and Sidcup, James Brokenshire, widely seen as an incredibly well liked, respected MP. There was obviously a lot of affection held for him by his constituents. Owen Patterson had to resign over you know a lobbying scandal where he was you know defiant to the end, caused a huge amount of upset amongst his own MPs, and. And 
there's a bit of a tussle going on, isn't there, between Labour and the Lib Dems over this seat. With the Lib Dems are the favourite, but Labour aren't quite giving in. It's quite an interesting one in the sense that the Lib Dems have basically become the main challenges for the Conservatives, primarily by saying repeatedly and loudly that that's what they are. I mean, in the 2019 general election, where Patterson was returned very easily, his majority was just under 23,000. The Lib Dems came third behind Labour, and it's the same candidate, uh, Helen Morgan, and she only got 10% of the vote. But the Lib Dems are relying very heavily on the fact that in um, the local elections last May, they did reasonably well in quite a few places. Um, and I talked about this with Sarah Olney, who is Liberal Democrat MP for Richmond Park, which is the West London Richmond rather than the Yorkshire Richmond. But I think the, the important thing for us and the reason we thought we would give it a go, if you like, uh, is because we've won... We won quite a lot of council seats in the area in May um, and we thought that gave us an opportunity to establish that we really were the challengers in this seat. Um, And we know that there are lots of voters out there, if they're disillusioned with the Tories, would be happy to switch their votes to the Liberal Democrats, but not necessarily to Labour. So that's why we thought there's a good opportunity here um, and let's go for it and see how well we do. So I think we're going to have a good result. Much too soon to say, of course, whether that's going to be a victory, but I think a good result will send and, you know, a quite an important message to the Tory government. And I think that's what we'd really like to see. And they've basically been saying, you know, we're the only party. If you want soft Tory voters to kind of move over, which is the only way the seat can be won, they're not going to shift to Labour. They might shift over to the Lib Dems. The Labour candidate and his team are vehemently battling against that, saying they're trying as much as they can. And they're saying their canvassing returns are very, very good. But, but if you talk privately to people in Labour HQ, they will basically say, you know, in Old Bexley and Sidcup, we really, really tried and Lib Dems, to an extent, stood to one side. In North Shropshire, it's the other way around. It's not a formal pact in any way. But it's just a recognition that with first past the post, if you're going to beat the Conservatives in what is normally for them a safe seat, then opposition has to coalesce around one party. There's a lot of support, you know, in this idea of formal progressive alliances, anti-Tory alliances, where um, people stand down in various seats in order to allow the anti-Tory vote to coalesce and to, to elect them, um, whether that be a Lib Dem, the Labour, uh, the Greens. There's a lot of controversy about whether you should include the SNP in that kind of progressive alliance as well. It's not something that a lot of people at the top of any of the political parties are a major fan of. But these kind of things sometimes just work themselves out naturally, even if, if, if parties in, insist publicly that they don't exist. Do you, think that's, do you think that's right? I mean, the answer is yes and no. In the by-election, it's possible. In the sense, in the Cheshire and uh, Amersham by-election, where the Liberal Democrats won when they overtook a Conservative majority of about 16,000, there was this very, very real sense that they were the only people that the Conservatives could be beaten by. So a lot of Labour and Green voters decided to tactically vote for them and the Labour vote went down to virtually nothing. It's about 600 or so uh, votes. And I think there's two important things to stress, one of which is the idea of a formal progressive alliance whereby Labour, Lib Dems, Greens and potentially even SNP step aside for each other um, in a general election is not going to happen. I can't see how it would Labour's mantra is that they are a national party, they're a party of government, they're able to win a majority on their own. And I can't see any way under the current leadership that they would step aside. And if they're not going to, the Lib Dems are not going to. And in turn, the Greens, who are probably most keen on this as a formal pact, are also not going to in most places. And the second element is that whilst you can have this very kind of noisy and energetic campaign to position your party as the opposition to the Tories, in a certain seat, in a by-election. 
in a general election, when you've got the noise of 650 kind of consecutive battles all going on at once, it becomes that much more tricky. And I think voters are starting to get a bit more savvy. And it's going to be interesting when the next general election comes along, if some of this by-election tactical voting can be transferred more onto the kind of bigger stage. And one of the things will be, isn't there, that, that, that's meant that the Conservative parties ha- have been able to, you know, take very large chunks of the vote is that they don't quite have the same problem that those who are on, on the kind of anti-Tory progressive side has. And there's, a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a significant choice of parties. The Tories haven't got a really significant threat from the right. But apart from we're starting to see a bit more support, a bit of an emergence from the Reform Party, um, Nigel Farage's new outfit with Richard Tice uh, fighting many by-elections, including old Bexy and Sinclair. T- tell us a bit about how he did there. Yeah, so Richard Tice stood as the candidate in old Bexy and Sidcup, and I imagine he's probably kicking himself for not having gone for the later by-election as well, because there he might have stood more of a chance and uh, been able to kick up more of a fuss. But in Old Bexie and Sidcup, Reform UK did reasonably well. They came third. Uh, they took 6.6% of the vote. Meaning Only about 1,000 votes, though. <laughs> yes, true. Uh, it did mean that they were able to keep their deposit, so that's something for them to crow about. Um, but it is really kind of the only big electoral threat to Boris Johnson on the right. And I think Conservative MPs are wary of this and worry that while that is the case for now, that they worry that in the run up to the next election, that leaves sort of space on the right of the party for another party or group to sort of come up out of nowhere and flank Boris Johnson on the right and threaten to do to him sort of on Brexit what the Brexit party sort of tried to do in 2019. And now that Brexit isn't necessarily that big dividing issue, what kind of what kind of issues is, is, is someone like Richard Tice running on? Where is he trying to outflank Boris Johnson? Well, really, Reform UK and Richard Tice have been the sort of outsiders on the right, the kind of more libertarian people, the ones who are arguing that really uh, lockdowns, you know, weren't the best choice, that um, things like the taxation system need massive overhaul, that actually the tax burden is is really too high. So those are the kind of issues that, you know, Conservative MPs are a little bit more jittery about. It's hard to see if that will necessarily translate into mass appeal at a general election when really these kind of more single-issue subjects are not almost always front of centre in voters' minds. They care about things like the NHS, about hospital waiting lists, education and schools and things like that. So it's harder, I think, at a general election for single-issue parties like Reform UK to to get more substantial vote share and eat away at the Conservatives. But I think some Conservatives are just more worried that really there'll be another sort of electoral party or force that comes along and threatens to occupy that space, which is a sort of more low-tax, more right-leaning, economically conservative government space. It's it's worth noting, actually, that in the North Shropshire by-election, Reform UK could take a reasonable number of votes, because one of the big complaints that Conservative voters or or former Conservative voters who I talked to there were saying is that the Tories have brought in a very non-local candidate. He's a Birmingham army officer turned surgeon turned lawyer called Neil Shastri Hurst. And the fact he's not local is is quite a big issue for some people. And Reform UK have um, filled someone called Kirsty Walmsley, who is from this quite venerable conservative family locally. Her dad was the leader of Shropshire Council for quite a few years. And, you know, her mother and I think her grandmother also were also Tory councillors. So she's really, really well known. And in this kind of quite fiercely local, fairly rural area, that could count for something. You know, it probably won't be enough to deprive the Tories of a win, but it could still give them a bit of a, uh, bit of a, uh, bit of a fright. 
Would it only be a win for the Lib Dems that really sends a shockwave through the Conservative Party in a way that, um, you know, the Tories lost a significant share of the vote in Bexley, but, you know, they seem to take that in their stride to a certain extent? Or, or will, you know, a, a really tiny slashed majority be something that, that, that spooks them in the way that the Tory party has been spooked quite a lot by um, the last few weeks on sleaze, on um, the reception of the social care bill, on, on, on the reception of uh, some of the transport links in northern constituencies. Is it something that's going to start setting more doubt in, in Tory MPs' minds? I think there's kind of two answers to this question too. The first one is that this slightly literalist media interpretation of by-elections will be that if the Conservatives win, then you know that's a win. And Obviously, winning is much better than losing. But this is a seat that has been Conservative in its various forms for all but two years, for the last 200 years. So if the Lib Dems came within even a few thousand votes of uh, winning, then then a lot of Conservative MPs would be seriously, seriously worried. This is, in many ways, about as Tory as it gets. It's quite rural. It was very Brexity. It's had a Tory MP, obviously, for ages and ages. The majorities have always been, been big. And... I think a lot of Tory MPs, if they're thinking that Boris Johnson can lead them to a position where the Lib Dems can nearly win there, and they will accept there's, you know, unique circumstances and things like that, but it would put the wind up them quite a lot. Aubrey Allegretti and Peter Walker, thanks ever so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, as Jonathan Freeland and Oliver Luckland discuss why a lot of eyes will be on the state of Georgia ahead of next year's midterms. But for now, I want to thank our guests Zoe Williams, Jessica Elgott, Aubrey Allegretti, Peter Walker, Sarah Olney and Abina Apong Asari. The producers were Yolene Goffin and Danielle Stevens. I'm Rowena Mason. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.